Last week we examined the birth of Isaac, this child of promise, whom Abraham had waited 25 long years for. Finally, he was born. Between verse 7 and verse 8 is at least two years, if not three years. Apparently it was customary in that culture for babies to breastfeed even up to age three. And so, basically at this point, Isaac is now two or even three years old. And as we see, Abraham makes a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. This seems to be sort of a rite of passage, a coming of age kind of ceremony. And Abraham celebrating this milestone for his son, Isaac. Verse 9 tells us that Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So, she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son. It seems that there was more going on than just that he was laughing at a joke or laughing at something funny that happened, but that there was something mischievous at best, something uh, inappropriate. Perhaps something perverse at worst. Something bad was going on here. Ishmael was mistreating Isaac. Galatians chapter 4 tells us that the child of the slave woman persecuted the child of the free woman. When we come across to Genesis chapter 26 and verse 8, we read that in the middle of this ruse where Isaac, the son, is committing the sins of the father, lying to Abimelech and saying that his wife, Rebekah, is his sister, we read that Abimelech looks out the window and sees Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? So this laughing might be a euphemism in in that case, in Genesis chapter 26, for some kind of sexual activity, some kind of flirtatiousness, some kind of sexual touching, kissing, something like this. So it's possible even that Ishmael is sexually abusing Isaac in some way, at some level. It's the same word used, laughing, in chapter 21 of Ishmael with Isaac and chapter 26 of Isaac with his wife, Rebecca. In any case, something, something inappropriate is going on here because Sarah gets angry and says, cast out this slave woman and her son. She wants Hagar and Ishmael expelled from the household. And she's not likely just angry about this particular event, but this is probably something like the straw that broke the camel's back. You'll remember that Sarah has a jealous disposition even after she suggested to Abraham that he sleep with Hagar and have a son by her. uh, She quickly becomes jealous of Hagar and mistreats her. And so most likely that dynamic, we're not told in the scripture that it has resolved. And if it had resolved, this particular incident may not have been become such a sticking point for Sarah. So it seems that this is probably the end of a cumulative process of her dealing with her frustration and her jealousy 
towards Hagar, who is a rival wife to her, even though she's been put back in the position of a slave. And then Ishmael, who has become a rival to her son, Isaac. This is what's going on here. John Curran, who's a professor at Reformed Theological Seminary, says, The Lippet Ishtar Code from Mesopotamia says that those in that position may be given freedom in exchange for their property rights. That seems to be what is going on in our story. So Sarah wants Hagar and Ishmael disinherited. She wants them gone from the household, both to protect her son from the persecution that he's receiving at the hands of Ishmael, but also it seems that she wants Ishmael and Hagar disinherited out of the home for that reason. And so the way to do that is by granting the slave woman and her son their freedom in exchange for their property rights. Abraham's reluctant, but God agrees, surprisingly, and we'll talk about that in a few moments, with Sarah's desired course of action and encourages Abraham, well, that's an understatement, commands Abraham to do what Sarah has suggested. And then what we see is God showing a measure of grace to Ishmael. We saw that God dealt graciously with Hagar when she was when she ran away from Sarah in chapter 16. God deals graciously with Ishmael in this passage, though not to the same extent. We don't have any reason to think that God saved Ishmael from his sins, but we do see in this passage that God spared Ishmael's life. The whole section from verse 15 through verse 21 describes God being gracious to this boy. The skin of water that Abraham had given had been exhausted, and Hagar sets Ishmael down and goes away off because she can't bear to see the boy die. She's crying. The boy is somehow crying out to God because God says in verse 17 that he heard the voice of the boy. And God says to Hagar that he will make the boy into a great nation, shows her a well of water which preserves their life, and leads them all the way to the land of Egypt, where Ishmael eventually takes a wife and becomes a great nation. So we see common grace going on here. Sometimes God doesn't save someone, but blesses their estate. God doesn't save someone, but blesses their family in a certain way. God doesn't save someone, but grants them some of the desires of their heart. This is not something that God owes people, but we see that God does deal kindly with those even who are outside of the household of faith. It's a kindness that ought to lead to repentance, as Romans tells us, and when it doesn't lead to repentance, it's stacking up guilt against those people. That on the day of judgment, it will be further testimony against them. That not only did they owe God worship as creator, not only should they have bowed the knee before Christ and recognized His Lordship and rested their souls in Him, but after all of these additional things that God has done for them, how much more ungrateful, how much more stubborn have they been to persist in unbelief. So common grace is not to be compared with 
saving grace, as if they're on par. But we do see in this passage and elsewhere, as we move through this storyline of Scripture, that God often does deal graciously to a measure with those who are outside of the household of faith. But that's not the main thrust of this passage. The main thrust is God distinguishing between Abraham's sons. Let's look for a second at Sarah's actions. Again, as I've alluded to, they're not surprising because Sarah has dealt harshly with Hagar in earlier chapters. It's not really surprising. It's not out of character for Sarah to come here and want to deal harshly with Hagar and her son Ishmael again here in this section. This episode is reminiscent of her earlier actions and simply exemplifies an outstanding tension that hasn't really been resolved in the biblical narrative. And we see here that Sarah is concerned for the immediate future. That is that Isaac should receive the inheritance of Abraham. She's trying to stick up for her son, so to speak. Make sure that he gets what's coming to him. So this is Sarah's actions. It seems that she's acting in a self-interested way, or at best, a son-interested way. She's not necessarily thinking about what is just. She's not necessarily thinking about what is fair. She's not necessarily thinking about what is gracious or reasonable. But she's thinking, probably, to some extent, motivated by jealousy, that, as she's exhibited in the past with Hagar, and also partly she's trying to think shrewdly about making sure that Isaac gets the inheritance. So her actions are not all that surprising. We don't read this and be like, oh, whoa, what, Sarah said this? It doesn't really shock us after we've got this far in the Abrahamic narrative. Abraham's actions are more surprising, not his unwillingness. We read that the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. Isaac was two or three years old. And Ishmael was 14 years old when Isaac was born, which means that Ishmael would have been 16 or 17 years old. And so this was sending his son, whom he loved, whom at various points he had tried to plead with the Lord to make his heir. He obviously had strong, warm affections for his son Ishmael. This boy had grown up in his home. He was now 16, 17 years old. You can imagine just how difficult it would be to send your 16 or 17 year old boy with his mom out into the wilderness. So this thing was very displeasing to Abraham. And that's not really surprising. That's natural affection. But what is more surprising is the scarce provision that he makes. In verse 14, we read that Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. You could... And some have argued that bread and water is symbolic of lots of provision. But the language here doesn't really allow us that. It doesn't say that he gave her bread and water. 
it says that he gave her bread and a skin of one, which is much more specific. It also says that he put it on her shoulder. So if bread and water was just a stand for camels and donkeys loaded with all kinds of provision and servants to go with them, we wouldn't expect such specific language. It seems that Abraham literally gave her a loaf of bread and a skin of water and sent her into the desert, which would be pretty scarce provision. Calvin frames the question well, why does he not at least load a donkey with a moderate supply of food? Why does he not add one of his servants of which his house contained plenty? Good question. Some possible answers, although I don't think we can get this 100%. Calvin surmises that it's possible that Abraham limited her provision in order that she might not go far from his house. That would fit with Abraham's pragmatic thinking that we've seen in other passages where he's kind of willing to act a little bit underhandedly or a little bit deceptively or whatever in past situations. But what we see in this section here is that he receives this instruction from God about doing this thing and he rises early in the morning to do it. It seems that he's cooperating He's submitting to God in what God has told him to do. And so that would be, that would be really half-hearted obedience to God if he was really kind of just trying to give her enough to like trail behind the camp and sneak more provisions out to her night by night or something like this. So I think that's unlikely. John Gill says perhaps God ordered it so that they might know the difference between being in Abraham's house and out of it. In other words, the blessing of God was upon Abraham's family. Abraham's family was typical. It typified the church. And so perhaps God ordered it this way so that Hagar and Ishmael would perceive the difference between being in Abraham's family, in amongst those with whom God is dealing graciously, in among those who are primary heirs to the promises and being outside of that community. I think that that is unlikely also because God provides a well. As I've just said, God has God does actually deal graciously, not savingly, but graciously with Ishmael later on in the passage. And so if it was God's intention to deal harshly with them, to show the contrast between being in Abraham's family and being outside of it, we wouldn't expect him to show up and provide a well in the wilderness and make Ishmael into a great nation. So I think that that is unlikely. And John Gill offers another alternative. And I think this is the most convincing. As he was to hearken in this affair to whatever Sarah said and act accordingly... Perhaps this was all she would grant. What does God say in verse 12? Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. I think this is is more likely. When we see what's going on, and the way that the characters are in this situation, it probably seems that God has said, do whatever Sarah tells you, I'm going to take care of the boy. So Abraham comes back to Sarah. You can imagine the conversation. Okay, 
God appeared to me and told me to do what you say, so I'm going to send them away. I'm going to send them off with donkeys and servants to help them. Sarah says, no, no, no. Bread and water. Right? And Abraham remembers what God has said. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For I'm going to take care of the boy. You can imagine a conversation like that. I think that's the most plausible of all of these things. So we see Sarah's actions and then Abraham's actions. They're kind of surprising. But as we've seen, the history of Abraham and Sarah is up and down. Sometimes they do the right thing. Sometimes they do the drastically the wrong thing. So we're not really shocked necessarily to see jealousy or harshness or wavering back and forth or all of the things that we might see in these texts with the human characters. We're not that surprised so far in the narrative by what Sarah does and what Abraham does. But God's actions in this section may be the most surprising to us depending on our preconceived perception of God. This is because God deals with Abraham's sons differently. God distinguishes between Abraham's sons. God distinguishes between Abraham's sons. Not Abraham's sons respond differently to the same promises. Not God offers Ishmael and Isaac the same thing, and one of them uses their free will in this way, and one of them uses their free will in this way. God distinguishes between Ishmael and Isaac in this passage. Isaac remains in Abraham's house and God says whatever Sarah says to you do as she tells you. And what Sarah has said is cast out the slave woman with her son. God says do it. Cast out the slave woman and her son. Treat this boy like this And treat this boy like that. God distinguishes between these boys. Now, this doesn't mean that God is putting His seal of approval on Sarah's motives. This doesn't mean that God is approving everything that may be going on in Sarah's heart towards Hagar and Ishmael. But God does put His seal of approval on the different destiny of the boys. God does put His seal of approval on Isaac being heir to the promises and not Ishmael. God does put His seal of approval on sending Ishmael into the wilderness. So while Sarah is concerned for the immediate future, that is that Isaac should receive the inheritance of Abraham, God's attention is to a larger, more comprehensive picture. It is through Isaac that Abraham's seed will be named or identified. That is, the covenant people of God will descend through Isaac, a lineage that will reach its climax in the coming of the Messiah. As John Curran 
God has different reasons for this action. But nevertheless, God approves this action. Cast out the slave woman and her son. While Isaac remains at home. God has been clear all along. In spite of Abraham's pleadings. God has been clear all along that it is through Isaac that your offspring shall be named. God has been clear all along that Ishmael is not the child of promise. God has been clear that His promises will come to pass through Isaac. As we talked about last week, God is faithful to do what He has said. It's important that God follow through on that blessing, making Isaac the instrument through whom all the blessings that God has promised to Abraham come. And through Isaac's lineage to send eventually the Messiah in whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It's important if God is to be faithful to His Word. It's important that He follow through on those promises and those statements. It's important not only that he follows through, but that he's seen to follow through. God wants us to see that he has done what he's promised. This is evident even from the genealogies in the New Testament. God doesn't just say, take my word for it. Jesus is the son of Abraham. He walks us all the way back and shows us that Jesus is the son of Abraham. Because He wants us to see that not only is He faithful, He wants wants us to see that He is faithful to His promises. He wants us to see that. Not only is He going to do it, but He wants us to see Him do it. This is part of God's purpose in the whole unfolding of the history of redemption. Not only is He doing these things, but He's telling us what He's doing. He's explaining what He's doing. To the praise of His glorious grace. To the praise of His glory. As a manifestation of His character. This is why God is acting in history the way He's acting. To show us who He is and what He's like and how He deals with people that we would worship. So it's important not only that God follow through and fulfill all His covenant promises to Abraham through Isaac but that he's seen to do it through Isaac. Which means that the other son has to go. Because if these boys are intermingled, if the the descendants of these boys are intermingled, God may well know who Isaac's seed is, but none of us could ever see it. Later on, God, later on, pardon me, not God, Abraham sends his boys away. He has some other children with a wife named Keturah. Genesis chapter 25. All of these were children of Keturah. Verse 4 says, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. It's important that Isaac and his lineage be preserved from intermingling with Abraham's other boys so that it will be clearly seen that God has followed through 
on what he has said he will do through Isaac. So this is what's going on here in this passage. This is what's happening in redemptive history. But additionally, and this is what I want to focus on for the duration of our time tonight. Additionally, what's going on is that God is here exercising His prerogative to bless one and not another. In redemptive history, what's going on is God is distinguishing between Isaac and those through whom He will fulfill His covenant promises to Abraham and Ishmael and later on Abraham's other sons. That's what's going on at that level. But on another level... At a more basic level, God is exercising His prerogative to bless one and not another. And this is what offends us when we first read this passage. We read God affirming to Abraham, send the slave woman and her son into the wilderness. And we think, what? Why did God say that? Why didn't God say... Go correct your wife, Sarah, and tell her, no, we're not doing that. God says, yeah, cast out the slave woman and her son. God is exercising His divine prerogative to treat people differently. This is God's prerogative. And it offends our sensibilities everywhere we see it in Scripture. It bothers us every time we see it in Scripture. But it's the truth. God may treat one differently than He treats another. God does not owe anyone blessings. God does not owe Ishmael a life in Abraham's household. Remember that literally nowhere, ever, Has God, is God, or will God ever treat somebody unjustly by giving them less than they deserve? When people don't get the promotion, God's not treating them unjustly. When people are not protected, God is not treating them unjustly. When people lose someone in tragedy... God is not treating them unjustly. Again, we got to go back to the baseline of what justice is. Justice is what you merit. And none of us have merited anything but death. The wages of sin is death. Which comes back to what I said at the beginning that God's dealings with Ishmael are gracious. You can't get away from that. God deals graciously to an extent even with those who are unbelievers, even with those who are outside of the church, when somebody does get the promotion, when they are protected, when a loved one is raised up from the sickbed and recovers their health, grace! But God does not always deal graciously with everyone in the same way. Sometimes the young mother dies of cancer. Sometimes a family goes broke. 
Sometimes somebody gets fired at their job, loses their job. Sometimes that happens. When that happens, no one is being cheated by God. As if God has failed to give them something that they are owed. It's not an obligation for God to bless anyone. You need to start with that baseline. Then what we see is that then God can bless whoever He wants to bless. And that's His prerogative to do that. If God wants to call Abraham and not Abraham's neighbor in the land of Ur, of the Chaldees, that's God's prerogative. If God wants to bless Isaac and not Ishmael, that is God's prerogative. No one is owed God's blessings. God distinguishes in the Scripture between people. And this offends us. This bothers us. Because if we're honest, at the root, we feel like we're owed. That's the only reason it could bother you. Because if you realize that God doesn't owe anyone anything, then you realize that where He shows favor, where He shows grace, where He blesses, it's above and beyond what He's obligated to do. And are not His gifts and His riches His to do with as He pleases? Is not He able to exercise His benevolence toward whomever He wants to exercise His benevolence toward? We see in the Scripture here tonight, it's not Ishmael but Isaac who is blessed. You may say, well, that's because Ishmael is the son of an illegitimate union and his mother is Hagar, the slave woman. So there's reasons for that. There's differences between Ishmael and Isaac. Paul answers that objection in Romans 9. He says, well, what about the twins in the womb? The next generation who are both sons of the same woman. Twins in the womb. There's no difference. (laughs) Nevertheless, we read, not Esau, but Jacob. As we go on in the Scripture, we see that even within Jacob, or Israel, God changes Jacob's name to Israel and makes a nation come from him. What we see is that even within Israel, it's not those who rebelled in the wilderness, Korah, Dathan, or Abiram, but it's Moses. It's not the ten spies, but the two. It's not Saul, but David. It's not Ahab, but Elijah. It's not Hananiah, who makes false prophecies about the exile into Babylon, but Jeremiah. We might have thought that this distinguishing stopped when we get to Israel. But what we see is that not all 
of Israel's children are children of promise. Again, even within Israel, God distinguishes. It's not one, but the other. We see that God's election goes further than simply not Ishmael but Isaac and not Esau but Jacob. But we see in Romans 9 again that not all Israel is Israel. Romans 11.5 tells us that at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. Even within Israel there are those whom God has chosen to be heirs of all the promises that are coming to yes and amen in Christ Jesus. And there are those even among Israel's descendants who are not. God distinguishes. And if God has distinguished even among the Israelites, has He not distinguished also that among the Gentiles? This is Paul's point that he's driving in Romans 9. God makes distinctions. Not one, but the other. Why did God call you, not your sister? Why did God call you and not your brother? Why did God call you, not your grandparent? Why did God call you and not your child? It's not of Him who wills or runs. It's not a difference in us. As some argued about Ishmael and Isaac. But it's a difference in God's distinction. As Paul makes clear with the example of Jacob and Esau. God distinguishes. God makes distinctions. And it's His prerogative to do so. God has determined that not all within Israel nor all outside of Israel will be saved. God has determined that He will save persons from among every tribe and language and people and nation. All without distinction. That is that you can't say Bajans are out. Bajans can never be saved. Or Canadians are out. They can never be saved. Or the way that you can't say white people are out. They can never be saved. The way you can't say black people are out. They will never be saved. God saves from among every tribe and language and people and nation without distinction. But God doesn't save everyone within every tribe and language and people and nation without exception. There are those who will be saved and there are those who will not be saved. And the Bible teaches us very clearly that in the final analysis, this is because God makes distinctions between people. He says, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. None of us are owed salvation. If we're in, it's not because we were better, wiser, anything like that than anyone else. God didn't owe it to us. He's been merciful. God doesn't owe your unbelieving co-worker or your unbelieving friend 
or your unbelieving family member salvation. He will have mercy upon whom he will have mercy. And it's his prerogative to do so. To claim otherwise would be to claim that God owes us grace, which would make grace no longer grace, but wages. This is Paul's line of argumentation in Romans chapter 4. So you can be Abraham's son and yet be out. You can be sent into the wilderness even if Abraham is your father. So it is, if it's that way with Abraham's nearest descendants, so it is with Abraham's farthest descendants, the ethnic Jews. Not all Israel is Israel. You can be the son of Christian parents, those who are united to Christ by faith and become heirs of the promises made to Abraham through faith. You can be the son or the daughter of Christian parents and still be out. You can be the son or the daughter of a pastor and still be out. God dispenses His blessings as He sees fit. And sometimes He distinguishes between one brother and another. Between two persons in the same environment, God distinguishes between one and the next. This passage gives us a humbling reminder that grace is grace. One of the things that the doctrine of election is supposed to do is put us in the dust. It's not to make us proud Calvinists who go around feeling superior than everyone else because we understand that there was nothing better in us. How ironic and foolish would that be? To go around boasting about how we know that there was nothing better in us. The doctrine of election is to put us in the dust. To say, as we sang earlier, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died He for me? Who caused His pain? For me? Who Him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that Thou, my God, shouldst die for me? This is what the doctrine of election should do. Why me? I see my friends out there, they don't know the Lord. I see my family members out there, they don't know the Lord. I see my co-workers out there, and they don't know the Lord. They're dead in their trespasses and sins, and so was I. But God, who is rich in mercy, made me alive together with Christ Jesus. 
God, according to His good pleasure, predestined me for adoption as a son. It's not of me who wills and runs, but of God that has mercy. Gets me low in the dust. And exalts our God. This passage gives us a humbling reminder that God distinguishes between people. Not Ishmael, but Isaac. Practically, however, we aren't to try to figure out who's elect. But we're to understand this. What matters most is not your relationship to God's people, but to God Himself. You may be a physical child of Abraham, but God may count you out as God counted Ishmael out. You may not be a physical child of Abraham, but by faith God may count you in. Throughout the Old Testament and even to the present day, many people set their hope on being Abraham's children. But they forget that among Abraham's children are Ishmael and Esau, Korah, Dathan, Abiram, Ahab, Hananiah, etc. The history of Israel is designed to teach us this, among other things. What matters most is not your relationship to God's people, but to God Himself. You can be visibly among God's people. Your parents can be God's people. But you need a relationship with the Messiah. Galatians 4.28 teaches us that it is those who are in the covenant of grace through the Messiah, whether Jews or Gentiles, who are like Isaac, the children of promise. Those who are united to Christ by faith. Those who are partakers in the covenant that Christ mediates. Those who are represented covenantally by Christ Jesus. Who are like Isaac, children of promises. Promise, pardon me, whether Jews or Gentiles. The gospel is not that if you are born into a certain family, if you are born into a certain nation, if you stand in this visible relationship to the church, you may be saved. This is not the gospel. The gospel is that we are sinners and we don't deserve anything but death and hell. But God distinguishes between people. And for all those whom He has foreordained to save, He sent Christ Jesus into the world to act as a representative, living a life that we should have lived on our behalf, dying the death that we should have died on our behalf, working in us who had no interest in Christ to draw us, as John chapter 6 says, to bring us to faith in Christ Jesus, to take out the heart of stone and put in the heart of flesh. So that by faith we might take hold of Christ and what is His may become ours. What is ours that is our sin becomes His and He bears it to the cross. This is the Gospel. The Gospel is that God distinguishes between persons. 
and has been gracious to me and is willing to be gracious to you. This offer of Christ Jesus is to be proclaimed to every creature under heaven. Practically, where your responsibility lies is to turn from your sins, repent and believe the gospel. That was Jesus' first sermon, you know. Mark chapter 1. Repent and believe the gospel. Turn away from your sins and take hold of Christ. Lay hold of Him. Doesn't matter if your parents are Christians or not. Doesn't matter if up till this day you've been a member of a church or not. Doesn't matter if you were born and raised here in Barbados, a supposedly Christian nation or not. What matters is that you are united to Christ Jesus in and through whom God is blessing the nations in faithfulness to His covenant to Abraham. We know that God elects. We know that God foreordains. We know that God distinguishes. But we don't know the specifics of that. Who's elect and who isn't. We don't wait to figure out who's elect before we evangelize. And we don't wait to figure out whether we're elect before we believe. There's a term for that. It's called hyper-Calvinism. We want to steer clear of that. Not touch it with a 40-foot pole. You repent and believe the gospel. And then we, together, go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. Trusting that, lo, He is with us always, even to the end of the age. The the doctrine of election puts us in the dust, humbles us before God, reminds us that grace is grace. It's not for figuring out how to respond to the gospel. It's not for figuring out how to evangelize. That's not what the doctrine of election is for. So use it rightly. Be humbled by this narrative here, this story here, this history recorded for us of God's distinction between Ishmael and Isaac. But you, you, if you haven't already, run to the cross where Christ was crucified for sinners and take hold of Him. He said, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Claim that promise and run to Him and take hold of Him. And then go and preach the Gospel to every creature under heaven and tell them the same thing. Whoever comes to Christ, He will never cast out. Would we not presume upon our children being granted saving grace from God? Nor would we presume ourselves to be heirs of grace because we belong to a Christian nation or a Christian family or even a church. But would we humbly ask and plead that God would grant us and our children and our loved ones and our co-workers, our family members, our friends, the privilege to be counted among children of promise. Would we plead with God that He would make those distinctions in their favor, that He would have mercy Upon, he will have mercy upon whom He will have mercy. Would we plead with God that He will have mercy upon those whom we desire to come to Christ? Because in the final analysis, 
It's God's distinctions between people that is the final word.